2: Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Nice to see you guys. Max, you're back on. I'm back on. I'm back on. Back to back Max Weeks. Back to back Max Weeks. And uh, while it's in, I guess, potentially, you know, like an adjacent territory to last week's interview with uh, Olivia Nuzzi, uh, it's a different one. It's a very, very uh, different part of the political universe. This week, I talked to Stephanie McCrummon, who is a uh, reporter with the Washington Post, and she has covered all kinds of different beats in her time with the Post. She's covered uh, mental health, she's covered religion, uh, but for the last several years, she has been covering primarily uh, Trump supporters in the South, Mm -hmm. uh, and, so we talked about what that experience has been like how she has approached that work um she also you guys remember the uh roy moore story uh the uh, alabama senate candidate do you you, she broke that story she won a pulitzer for it but then i don't know if you guys remember this there was a um there was like a a sting with the post project veritas which is this like right wing sting operation that was that that was her that was her so so after she broke this roy moore story This group, Project Veritas, approached the post trying to get them to do another story about Roy Moore, uh, that they were going to videotape them saying this will end Roy Moore's candidacy. And Stephanie was the one that they approached. So she actually had this meeting with this quote unquote source where they were being videotaped from both sides. Uh, both The Post and Project Veritas. Anyway, we talked about all of that. She's had a really interesting uh, couple of years doing, doing this work. And, um, you know, again, much like Olivia, I'd been wanting to have her on the show for a long time, and uh, it felt like a, a really good week to talk to her. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're entitled to two uh, post-election episodes. We've endured four years. We can talk about it for two weeks. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And the people who have been covering it for four years have really um, endured something totally different.
0: Uh, if you are feeling like you are turning
2: the corner, which I hope, I hope we are all feeling like we're turning the corner. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe there's a new life, uh, ahead for you in a new place. Perhaps you've moved during the pandemic and a life that includes a email newsletter. I think everyone, I think everyone needs an email newsletter. If you're doing anything, you should have an email newsletter to let other people know about it. Do it with MailChimp. They are the most trusted email newsletter provider in the game. They support this show and have since the beginning. Thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Max with Stephanie McCrummon. Stephanie. Hello. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: You are in a hotel, which is a place that I have not been in a very very long time. Yes. Uh, you and I are talking on Zoom. I can see where you are. There's a sort of stencil on the wall behind you that says <laughs> "Sleep well, dream big."
1: Yes. I think this hotel it's a budget motel, and yet it has some sort of like you can like change the lights or something like to make them bluish. Has all kinds of little features like that.
2: You're in a disco hotel.
1: <laughs> it, it sounds like it. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, what are you doing in Atlanta?
1: Um, well, I heard there was an election, and I heard that Georgia was important, so I am here trying to absorb all of that and find a way to write about it.
2: I <laughs> I, I wish I could say I was sort of surprised by that answer, although like that's sort of how I have imagined your job for the last <laughs> couple of years is like, I heard there was an important thing somewhere. So I've gone. Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to try and figure it out. Is that literally like, that's it. It's like, there's going to be this Senate runoff. Georgia was pivotal and turned in the election. And so you are there trying to figure it out.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've been here since before election day itself. And yeah, it's just, you know, the idea of something big is happening and I'm trying to find a way to write about it in a maybe more intimate way, a more specific way, uh, all of those good things. I've also been writing a lot about the South for the last couple of years. Um, I'm from next door in Alabama, so...
2: You're from Alabama, but you live in D.C. now?
1: I actually moved to New York last year with the idea that this year I would be back and forth to D.C. a lot, and then the pandemic happened, so... No one has been in the newsroom much, um, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, yes. I'm now based out of New York, but traveling all the time. And yeah, I just thought Georgia would be you know of all the interesting places to go, um, one of the most interesting you know with the prospect of it changing politically. Um, you know, I was interested in that.
2: I want to talk to you about um about Alabama and growing up there and what it's like to go back and cover the South now. But help me understand. So with Georgia, were you assigned to that? Or do you get to choose where you go?
1: It's a little bit of a combination. I mean, the team, I'm on the national enterprise team at the Washington Post, which is a small team. And, you know, we're lucky in that we do get to kind of pick and choose the things that we're going to go after to a large extent, while at the same time, of course, trying to make ourselves useful in the broader scheme of things. And so it was sort of a combination. So we thought it would be an interesting place to go and... um, decided to try to find, a you know, one voter to write about on, you know, election day and the days after. So we did that. But, you know, these ideas often start off pretty vague and become quite specific after a lot of floundering. So <laughs> this was no different.
2: I really want to, um, I want to sit in the floundering. Yes. I'm interested in the floundering. <laughs> like, I find the idea of being like, Georgia's interesting. I'm going to go there and then figure out how to tell like an actually coherent and personal story about it. I feel that seems daunting to the point of like, totally impenetrable.
1: Yeah, and paralyzing.
2: Yeah. How, so how do you do that?
1: <laughs> well, this was a, a pretty straightforward, short story. But you know, it's as simple as, you know, election day is coming up, and we want to write about a voter in Georgia. Well, who's going to be really key to the election? Well, African-American women potentially are going to be extremely important. So that was something narrowing it a bit. And then, okay, where do you go? Well, there's early voting. So you go to early voting um, polling places in Atlanta. Um, So I found one in this sort of suburban community outside of uh, just south of Atlanta, predominantly middle-class, predominantly African-American community called East Point. So there I had sort of a location and then found the polling places, went to the polling places on Thursday and Friday, the last two days of early voting, and just started talking to people in line. Fortunately, the lines were long enough that you could sort of have a decent conversation before they got up to the, um, the threshold of democracy and, and <laughs> before they actually went in to vote. And so I talked to a whole lot of people and eventually, you know, found this woman, Cynthia Kendrick, who was very interesting, very thoughtful. And actually, she had already voted, but she was dragging like her daughter-in-law to vote which was like one of the last people that she had dragged to vote. I mean, she had encouraged so many people in her circles to vote, which seemed to me indicative of what a lot of people were doing. And um, so she was interesting. And then asked her if she would mind if I came over on election night. I mean, I asked her if she was going to be watching. She was. Went over um, and spent the evening with her. Went back the next day, spent the evening with her. I think I went back a third day or maybe it was just two days and just tried to be a fly on the wall. So that's kind of how that worked.
2: And when you're walking through the line and having conversations with people, what are you looking for? Like you said, she's interesting, Mm -hmm. but be more specific than that. Like, are those essentially like casting conversations? How does that work?
1: I hate to think of them as casting conversations. You know, you don't go in looking for something, but when I say interesting, I guess I mean, engaged, I guess. I mean, someone who feels something is at stake. You know, someone who, I mean, she happened to, when we were standing in line, she right then that in there, sort of told me an interesting story about how this whole moment, moment broadly defined the last few years. She had been thinking more and more about her grandparents, This woman was uh, 60 years old, and she talked about this memory. She kept thinking about um, how her grandparents took her with them to vote when she was a little girl. And this is a memory that, you know, she, it's a very important memory to her, but she had found herself sort of revisiting the memory over the last four years and finding, you know, sort of different meanings in it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, so I don't know. I just kind of wanted to know more about her. I just was curious about her. I guess that's the other thing. When you talk to someone, do you want to spend more time with them? Do you want to know more about them? If I, as a reporter, want to, then I figure hopefully readers will want to as well.
2: The idea of walking up and down an incredibly long like, voting line, <laughs> mm-hmm. striking up conversations with people, I don't think that's like everyone's idea of a good time. No. Do you enjoy that? Or is it something you have to like psych yourself up for?
1: I mean, I, I do have to psych myself up it's, there's always something awkward about it. And that never goes away. Some things, you know, no matter how long I do this job, that part of it doesn't get any easier. It's always a bit awkward. And you're always sort of humbled when someone actually is (laughs) willing to talk to you. And then it can be kind of thrilling, you know, once you're in it, once you're actually in the conversation, then it's pretty thrilling. But the moment just, you know, a few seconds before that is still to this day, it's sort of an act of will, Um, (laughs) you know, which is everything about me, nothing about the people who are just living their lives. But I just, I always imagine how odd it must be, you know, so I'm always thinking of ways to explain my presence. Now, in a voting line on a, you know, one of the biggest elections of any of our lifetimes, it was pretty easy to explain why I was there. Other times, it can be hard. (laughs) To explain.
2: Well, this is what I'm actually asking, I think. I mean, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is for years now, it feels like you've been coming out with these stories about people who I don't often see written about in the way that you write about them, like suburban women in Augusta, Georgia, mm. and a small evangelical church, and... There are people that are talked about as, like, (laughs) groups all the time, Mm. I feel like, in the national media. Yeah. But rarely are they portrayed in the way that you portray them. And my my sense is that it takes time. Like, it must take time to find those people. And so, I guess what I'm really trying to ask is, like, how do you do that? You know, thinking about, like, Miranda Mm -hmm. outside Augusta, how do you find her?
1: So... It started off pretty broad. You know, I was interested in writing about, we were interested in suburban women because, you know, just strictly speaking, um, with the election coming up, that was a category of voters that both parties were focused on.
2: And we should say this is a piece that came out in March of this year. And it's about a woman, a white woman in suburban Georgia who was married to a Trump supporter, lived in a community that was heavily, heavily supported of President Trump and who herself was having significant doubts and sort of like grappling with what that meant.
1: Yes. So, but the, you know, the starting point was as broad as, okay, suburban women. And then it was suburban women in the South. And then I thought, well, for all the talk about how the South has been so conservative, you know, solid red for so long, as you just said in a minute, uh, minute ago, it's, like, often just spoken of that generally, and I thought, I'm interested in the role of white women in keeping the South so conservative. So we started there, and then, as we often do, my editor and I, you know, sort of talked and decided that, well, it might be more interesting to find – you know, a conservative white woman in the suburbs who is beginning to question all that because surely those women are out there. I mean, we know from looking at election results that they're out there. And then, then it became a matter of where, again, sort of trying to locate the story in a place that is meaningful. I mean, everywhere is meaningful in the grand scheme of things, but in this political moment. So that got us to Georgia being a potential swing state. Um, The stakes seemed higher there. And then the suburbs, we decided to avoid suburban Atlanta because just sort of conjuring this person for the moment, we thought it's easier to be whatever you want to be in suburban Atlanta because it's such a big, diverse place with all kinds of people. So we thought, well, why don't we go somewhere different? And we thought, you know, the other cities in Georgia that got us to Augusta. And then, you know, what are the suburbs of Augusta? Well, they're Columbia County, which is a very, very red county. So that was sort of the area we decided to zero in on. And then from there, how do you even begin to find someone? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it seems like like that all seems logical, and I sort of yeah. understand it. But this this is the hard okay, part. Okay,
1: so okay, so then um, I called. I found the chairperson of the Democratic Party in Columbia County. Thinking that perhaps, you know, some woman might have come there, some people might have come to one of her meetings just out of curiosity to sort of just explore the possibility of what does it mean to be Democrat or whatever. So that got me to Liz, who was the secondary, you know, sort of the other main character in the story. And when I talked to Liz and asked her if she knew anyone, she said, I do. And it's my best friend, Miranda, <laughs> and she's sitting right here. And so I talked to Miranda on the phone and I mean that, and it's not just a matter of quote unquote, finding someone, you know, because maybe the person doesn't want to be written about her, who knows. So, but that got me to Miranda. And once I talked to her on the phone for a little bit, it became clear that she was this very thoughtful person who was in the middle of really struggling to figure out what she was going to do, or not even so much what she was going to do, but who she was going to be and what it all meant. And she just turned out to be the most extraordinary person. And, you know, it sounds like, and it is in many ways, it is a narrowing process to zero in and finally find one person. But I hope that writing about one person opens up a whole world, that it, it becomes a big story about this political moment who someone is and Someone's values and how they come to hold them. And so, anyway, so that's the story of how I found Miranda. And it's always some version of that process, I think, in a lot of stories. <laughs>
2: So it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a dumbbell, like it's like zoomed out, and then it narrows back down. And then the hope is that you can find someone who can sort of like, zoom it back out again, like explain some larger truth.
1: Yeah, or, or like the Miranda story. I mean, she was certainly explaining her thinking. But I wasn't really going to her for commentary on a moment. I was going to her because I wanted to know more about her.
2: And once you start that process, like once you go down and start taking walks with her and Liz in the woods and she's saying things, I mean, there are things in that story that she had not yet told her husband. Yes. Right? Like she's telling a reporter from the Washington Post things that she can't quite figure out how to tell her family.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: How do you get her to open up in that way?
1: Well, I think to rewind just a little bit, for these kinds of stories, I think that it's really important to have a conversation up front with the person that you intend to write about about what you're doing. And in fact, I don't see how it's possible to do it without that. And so I I did have these conversations with Miranda almost before the reporting began, just to sort of tell her why I thought she was interesting, why I thought what she had to say and was important, why I wanted to write about her, and then also sort of explaining to her, as best as I can, sort of how this kind of reporting works, that I would want to spend time with her, that I want to understand her, and that that means hanging out with her as much as I can in her life, but also asking a lot of questions. And so, so I think that She had the chance to, I hope, you know, a chance to sort of think it through. I mean, she didn't just sort of immediately say, yeah, sure, come on over and hang out with me for three weeks or however long it was, you know.
2: Maybe this is like a cynical way to think about it. But like, do you feel like that conversation, that part of it is trying to convince her to do it?
1: Mm. No, I don't really think of it that way because... I think of it as, I think of it at more, not as convincing, but as just explaining how, you know, again, explaining why I think she's important, why I think it matters. Because she has the same question that you had. She's like, how on earth? Why me? Why are you here? How did you find me? What? The Washington Post? I mean, it's weird, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I sort of explained to her just what I explained to you. I said, well you know, because, 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 and that's how I got to Georgia. It's how I got to Columbia County and da, da, da. And then I just think you're interesting, you know, and all of which is true. And then, you know, I sent her some stories that I had done in the past so that she had an idea of the kind of stories that I write. And then I just figure it's up to her. And, you know, I have a little conversation with myself, I guess, when I'm in these moments where I tell myself, always like, well, may not work out. Well, she may say no, and I'll move on. You know, I just, you know, I just sort of feel I have to be ready to, quote unquote, lose the story. Well, I never had it. But like, you know, I don't want to convince someone, honestly, I want them to decide. So that's kind of how I think about it is just, you know, you're giving someone an uh, this sounds awful, but an opportunity to be written about or, you know, some people want their story told, you know, they think it's important too.
2: Right. Well, I mean, I think like that's true of lots and lots and lots of people, although there was something about that story where, you know, what the story was about was essentially her struggling to come to terms with what she believed and how, you know, what stark contrast that stood to what her husband believed and what her family believed and like her inability to talk over that divide, to talk through that, you know? So yeah. I would imagine there would be some apprehension there. So I guess, all right, so you you don't convince, but you have this conversation with her to try and help her understand what her purpose is. Yeah. And she agrees. Yeah. And then how do you get her to open up to you in the way that she does in that piece?
1: Well, I guess... It's just a matter of, I say just, but, you know, it's a matter of trying to understand a person. So if you're trying to understand someone like her, I mean, Miranda, she told me how she was, you know, repulsed essentially by Trump and, you know, she said things like that. But then, you know, it's just a matter of saying why, why do you think that? Uh, just asking questions. So I don't really think of it as, I mean, I guess that's her quote unquote opening up to me. But I just was trying to understand the what was at the root of all of this, you know? And so I just kept asking why every five seconds, um, <laughs> you know? And, and, and it got to the point that it got to in the story. I mean, there was some really heavy stuff underneath. that um, had to do with things that had happened in her past, her sister, her values, her, you know, who she was. But I, I don't know. I didn't sort of go into it thinking, Ooh, I'm really going to get her to open up or something. I just went in there wanting to get to the bottom of, of what she was telling me, wanting to understand it as fully as I could. And that's what I kept telling her too. I mean, I think there were times where I was like, I just don't really understand why you're saying that. And I would say to her, I would say, I'm not arguing with you. I'm never arguing with someone, but I just want to understand why you're saying that. What do you mean? And it was mm-hmm. just a million conversations like that.
2: How much time did you spend with her?
1: Um, I think I made three trips, if I remember correctly. And I went, you know, hiking with her and Liz, which became sort of a centerpiece of the story, you know, them going into the woods and having these conversations. I went to school with her. I you know, did many things that weren't in the story. And as I went to school with her, I went grocery shopping with her, went to some furniture store, you know, I mean, drove around,
0: uh, yes.
1: <laughs> all those things, which you do because you, d- you know, like I told her, this is like part of the conversation at the beginning, you know, this may be weird. I want to spend a lot of time with you and you may think, why does she want to see me doing the dishes or whatever? Yeah. And then, you know, you just have kind of have to say, well, I don't know why, only I know that, <laughs> that the more time I spend, the more I'm going to understand who you are.
2: All right. So if you've done this work of finding the person, helping them understand why you're there, you know, having the incredible luxury of taking three trips and spending all of this time with her, when do you know that you get it? Like, when do you know that you've figured her out?
1: Mm, That's a good question. It's kind of, you know, I, I hate to say this, but it's over time I have learned that it's you just kind of know when you've gotten to the bottom of something. I mean, if I still feel confused about what she's telling me, then I'm not done yet. You know, if I feel like I don't quite understand why she doesn't want to talk to Philip for example you know i don't quite understand that if i have that in question in my head then i need to go back until i do understand it yeah it's just a feeling that's a good question but then there's you know there's also the question of like you know just in terms of storytelling also like do you feel like you've seen enough or whatever and and occasionally it does happen and it happened in this story where I feel like, you know, I've seen something or heard something or both at the same time where I feel like, okay, that's the, I think that's the end.
2: Having a feel for that, like knowing that you've, you've got it, is that something that has improved over the course of your career? Like, is that muscle in better shape than it once was?
1: Yeah, I think probably so. You know, having done these stories for a little while now, I think I have a better feeling for that. I have this conversation with my colleagues and my editor sometimes about like thinking about the writing while you're reporting. And I often don't do that. And I know some of my colleagues, they do, you know, as they're reporting, they're all simultaneously thinking, oh, that's the second section or, oh, Mm -hmm. that's the beginning. That's how this begins or something like that. And occasionally that that happens just like almost despite myself, like I can't help but see it or feel it. But most of the time I, you know, and I don't know if this means I'm not a writer or I don't know what it means, but I just, I need to be in the moment when I'm reporting. I need to be all in absorbing it. I find that more helpful to the writing than thinking about structure in one part of my brain while I'm trying to focus on what someone's saying with another. I don't do that i just i feel like i'm totally absorbed with the person when i'm with them
2: are you that way in the rest of your life (laughs) like like are you are you able to be like totally present with your friends (laughs) or your family
1: um i like to think so but then like when i don't have a person in front of me i can be pretty out of it i have to say i'm one of those (laughs) you know kind of a little bit loopy in that regard yes
2: how um, how does your background, how does growing up as a white woman in Alabama impact these stories you're telling about white people in the South and, and particularly white women in the South?
1: Mm, I think that maybe it helps me to think of questions to ask. You know, I mean, I don't want to assume that you know, I have the same background as other white women that I, you know what I mean at all. But, you know, there's a certain environment that maybe I'm, you know, familiar with that would lead me to ask questions. So I think that helps a lot, you know, and you mentioned story about the, um, the church. I did a story mm-hmm. maybe two years ago. 2018, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was about a Southern Baptist church in a small town in Alabama, and the idea was simply to explore this white evangelical Christian support for Trump. And so I remember you know, reading so many stories about this, and the stories, would, they would always say that, you know, well, it's because of the courts and everything, and, which, of course, that is part of it. But having grown up in the Southern Baptist church, I felt like, okay, I know there's more to it than this. People always approach that story, they always want to just point out the hypocrisy. You know, that seemed to be what a lot of reporters were interested in doing. And I just wanted to evoke the worldview of a lot of these people. This, the very, you know, mm-hmm. sincerely held worldview in which heaven is a real place and hell is a real place. Like I just know deep in my bones as a southerner that you know, having grown up that way that that I think that a lot of people who didn't grow up that way maybe don't quite understand how literal, how fully formed these worlds are to people. And so that helped me with that story, for example.
2: There's another aspect of that story. And there's another aspect of that worldview, which is racism. Mm -hmm. Unvarnished, unbridled racism. And that piece, you know I remember reading at the time I reread it again before we talked and the group of people that you talk to for that story feel three-dimensional in a way that I think small southern baptist congregations normally don't mm-hmm. in national media. And also there are people in that story saying unfathomably awful things. Yeah. And I wonder how you think about your role in sort of like adding dimensions to people who are also expressing those views in the pages of the Washington Post.
1: Yeah. I just think of my role, you know, if someone says something, you know, that as you say, are just shockingly racist or whatever, I, I, you know, again, I think of like trying to understand it, trying to excavate that, trying to understand where did that come from? what is the life that results in someone saying that? What is the history of that person? So, you know, some people wish for more, for lack of a better term, like condemnation or more argument or something. And I think it's a fine conversation to have, certainly. But I I see these stories as not trying to excuse anyone at all, but trying to understand it and to um, interrogate it And I do think there's accountability in that, too. You know, I I didn't shy away from quoting people in that story, you know, saying some of these things that I knew were probably, were not going to go over so well. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's value in, in digging into that.
2: What's the value?
1: I think it just opens up a larger conversation, like okay, like this one woman in the story who said one of these things that you mentioned. You know, I started asking her about, this is an older woman. She's a young girl or maybe in her teens or something during the civil rights movement in Montgomery. And, you know, her experience of that was of fear. I mean, she was a little girl and I'm not saying she should have been afraid, but I'm just saying that was her experience of it. She told me a story about being sort of whisked away to her grandparents' house because, you know, her parents were afraid of violence, you know, and obviously we know that the violence was on the side of the sheriffs and the Klan and everything else. But I think a lot of white Southerners at that time, young people, you know, they were being sort of informed by their parents and their parents were telling them that it was scary. And so they were scared. And so she was whisked away And, you know, that's pretty much how she experienced the civil rights movement. And I don't know that she ever quite understood (laughs) really what it was all about. And, you know, that seems incredibly, I don't know what kind of judgment people (laughs) want to put on it, but that was her, you know, that's just the reality of her experience. I don't know what to say about it. And I think that it opens the door to like, what history do people learn? How do people learn history? What do they learn about why the South is the way it is? This whole history of lynchings in the South and this period of history that people know so little about, or I should say, white people, like they don't fully understand what that was about. And so that's a long winded answer <laughs> to the question, but. No,
2: that makes some sense. I mean, it's, I'm maybe dancing around a thing that I should just say, which is, you know, I went back and read you know, you're so prolific. You've written so many pieces over the last several years. And I was trying to find like the through line between them, Mm, you know, mm -hmm. like, like what is the thing that Stephanie has been covering in some like overall sense, you know, basically like what your, what's your beat, you know, (laughs) and looking back over your archive in the post, like there's these different eras. like there's a whole era, which like you were covering mental health, Mm -hmm. you know, and, like, clearly, like, you had big questions about how mental illness in America was treated or mistreated. And it feels to me like over the last couple of years, the beat maybe has been, like, whiteness.
1: Hmm. That's so interesting. I haven't really thought about it. But, um, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's it.
2: <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But that feels like the through line of these stories, whether it's that church or Miranda or... You know, even the sort of most recent piece about the congressional campaign in Georgia, like mm-hmm. it does feel to me like you have been trying to understand.
1: This construct <laughs> that is whiteness. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and the story that white people in America, particularly Southern white people in America, are telling themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I guess I am... I guess I'm interested in that. You know, in the conversation about racism in America, I think that it's an important territory to excavate, I guess, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's kind of important to name it maybe too, you know? Mm -hmm. But the sort of question that follows from that is like, so what have you learned about whiteness?
1: Mm. I always just refer back to my stories. Like, I think that, it's a lot about people's understanding of history or lack of understanding of history. It's a lot of the stories they tell themselves about why they are where they are. I think there can be sometimes a little bit of a, you know, almost sort of a culty aspect (laughs) to it. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I, 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 it's a good question. I don't have a satisfying answer, but Hats off to the question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very creative dodge to the question. Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess maybe another way of asking it is my sense is that you were curious about it because of who was in the White House, Mm. or at least in part because of who was in the White House. And so my sense is that another way of describing what that beat has been is like trying to understand Trump's base.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's totally fair. I mean, clearly the last four years have brought all of this to the fore in a way that, you know, maybe it hadn't quite been before. The last four years, the last eight years, the last 12 years.
2: And it feels to me like such a big part of the story of this election is that that base, that group of people that you have been writing about turned out in record numbers. Yeah. 70 million people. Yeah. Were you surprised by that?
1: Mm, I don't know. Not really. I mean, not really. But honestly, I don't spend a whole lot of time, you know, thinking about, you know, like predicting and analyzing political moment per se. You know what I mean? I I just think of myself as trying to understand the people that I'm writing about. I feel on less certain ground when I start making generalizations about (laughs) about things. (laughs) But um you know, but I do I feel like hopefully, hopefully I, I hope that some of these stories have, you know, contributed to understanding this moment that we're in.
2: Oh I don't I don't know how they couldn't have, you know? Yeah. So, can we talk about one more story Please. from um, from the last four years before? Yeah,
1: before let's your, talk about uh,
2: stories. I you, <laughs> so I, before I let you go, yeah. um, which is that you know you, you were part of the team, you led the team, is my understanding that broke the news about Roy Moore and underage girls. Yes, I have a source inside the Post mm-hmm. who told me that the Roy Moore story. Did not start off as the Roy Moore story. No. That you were sent to Alabama to cover something else. Yes. And you pivoted. And I I think that's the thing that I'm interested in. Mm. You went to Alabama. My understanding is that you were there to cover something very different.
1: Well, I was there to write about, you know, Roy Moore supporters, actually, because, you know, for anyone who was paying attention to that race back then, it really looked like he was going to win, which would have been a big deal. And, so I wanted to go there and write about, I think I had an idea to write about a Roy Moore family, a whole family of people who were, you know, supporting him. So that was sort of how it started. And as with all of these stories, as you pointed out at the beginning, you know, my reporting process, like I rarely like go down knowing exactly what I'm going to be doing. And so the first few days anyway of any story is going to be just talking to a bunch of people. And <laughs> as many people as I can to try to find somebody, or in this case, a family or a situation to write about. So that's what I was doing when I heard these rumors. And it was sort of said to me in a, almost a, an almost casual way, in the way that like something that has been bandied about <laughs> for years was said, like, oh, yeah, you know, he had a thing for the young girls or something. And some people that I was with kind of laughed. And that was how it first came up.
2: As soon as you hear that, do you just start reporting it out?
1: Um, well, I think I said, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you know, and uh, and then you know, there was a person who knew the person who you know tried to be Lee Korfman. So pretty much, I began the reporting, thinking, well, who knows if this is true? It could be rumors. Could be exaggerated. Who knows? But. You know, once I got her name, I thought, well, it's at least worth meeting her and hearing what she had to say.
2: And what, what was that conversation like?
1: Um, it was all off the record. She, you know, was nowhere near deciding whether she wanted to come forward with her story. So I just said, I said, well, you know, why don't we just meet? And at least you can have a chance to meet me and ask me any questions you want to ask me about this. And of course, I wanted to hear her story. And so she told it to me, you know, and it was all off the record. And, you know, I came away thinking there's a lot of reporting to be done here, but thinking that there was a lot of specificity in it, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I met with her and then my colleague Beth Reinhardt came down and we met with her, I don't know, probably a dozen times at least before she finally decided.
2: And what kind of care do you have to take with a source like that When, you know, the story is going to be explosive and shocking, you know, in the sort of run up to publication, is there anything that you're doing with her or for her, any conversations you're having with her that feel unique to that particular kind of story or reporting process?
1: I mean, we were in close touch with her throughout the reporting process, again, sort of explaining to her that we you know we asked her about you know her divorces. I think she had, I forget, a couple of bankruptcies. I mean, you know, we had to tell her that we needed to know about all of that stuff. And we had to explain to her that it had to be in the story, that and why it needed to be in the story. So there was some, you know, preparing her for that. And there was also, you know, as best as we can sort of preparing her for the possibility that, you know, that other reporters would call her once the story ran that I mean, again, you don't know what's going to happen when a story runs, really. You can kind of imagine. But, you know, we tried to tell her that she might want to have a plan in place for if people start showing up at her door, that kind of thing.
2: And then what was your experience when the story finally did hit? I mean, it was this massive national news story. It completely changed the outcome of the race. What was that experience like for you?
1: It was pretty nerve-wracking. You know, it was. you're just, of course... Terrified of getting something wrong constantly. The atmosphere was very charged. I mean, there were all these sort of strange, like, dirty tricks, for lack of a better term, going on in Alabama to discredit the story. You know, robocalls, like, somebody pretending to be a Washington Post reporter and offering money for, you know, stories smearing Roy Moore, for example— Uh, Sean Boberg did a story that I think it came out much later after all the smoke had kind of cleared, but it was a story about an attempt to bribe a guy who was sort of Lee Corfman's, it was a friend of hers really, but who was kind of acting as a lawyer and a reporter, a quote unquote reporter, I should say, like I think connected to, I want to say it was Breitbart News along with like some associates of, Steve Bannon or something like try. I mean, it was the craziest story. Tried to bribe him to say that she was lying or something like that. And it failed. But all of that stuff was going on, including obviously the Project Veritas thing. So it was pretty nerve wracking, I would say.
2: Yeah. I mean, can you give people the like quick summary of the Project (laughs) Veritas thing? It's a pretty wild thing to be like, the Project Veritas, the thing.
1: Project Veritas thing. Well, uh, so of course, after the story came out, we continued to report because you know we continued to get people were calling claiming to have stories about their encounters with Roy Moore, and so we were busy you know trying to check them out, and we you know did do I think a couple of stories after the initial one, um, but one of the people who contacted Beth initially turned out to be. A plant or an imposter, <laughs> a woman who we didn't know at the time, but um, it turned out she was working for Project Veritas, and she claimed that she had met Roy Moore one summer when she was, I don't know, 16 years old or something, and that he had gotten her pregnant and that he had arranged for her to drive to Mississippi and have an abortion and, you know, and it was this wild story. And so, so Beth... And
2: Project Feritas, for anyone who doesn't know, is an organization, right-wing organization that essentially tries to like dupe people into betraying their biases and then post those videos and make them go viral. And yes, the attempt was to try and show that the post was trying to affect the Senate race with Roe Moore.
1: I think they're, I mean not to presume to know exactly what they were doing, but my guess is they they thought that we would be all hot to trot on the story and that we would run it, just run with it without checking it out. And then they would come back and say, aha, see, they'll just take anything and this wasn't true or something. So I think that's what they were trying to do. But you know, we did vet the story and it wasn't checking out. And plus we were on high alert for just this very thing. And we eventually became convinced that she was in fact working for some, we didn't know Project Veritas, but for somebody that it was all a setup. Because the woman, her name was Jamie Phillips. There was some GoFundMe page online where she said that she was going to work in the I think she said the conservative media movement or something like that. Yeah. So we found- She's
2: basically it. like, I'm, I'm getting into scam disinformation.
1: Exactly, yes. So once we found that, we were like, okay, we know what we're dealing with. We figured that she had maybe had videotaped Beth, perhaps, when Beth had interviewed her initially. And then after that, she was asking to meet me. So we decided that I would meet her, only we would record her and, you know, sort of ask her questions about this GoFundMe page and ask her what she was doing. And so that's what we did. And, you know, it was just, it was the weirdest thing ever. I had to. What
0: what was that? Yeah. (laughs) What was
2: that meeting like? Like you were like, you were acting. It was like all of a sudden you were like, it was like a reverse sting.
1: (laughs) It was great. I mean, it was, you know, I think I hadn't showered in a month or something. I just, I mean, I was just getting back from Alabama that day. And suddenly I'm like being wired up in the newsroom Going to this Greek restaurant in Alexandria and yes, and sitting there. And I was, I think I, as I was leaving the newsroom, I think I said to my editor, well, it's been nice working here. Uh, (laughs) Because I just thought I was going to screw up. You know, I just thought, I, I don't know what's about to happen. I'm going to this bizarro world.
2: And the idea was to sort of document what they were doing to the Post. I mean, yes. it's very out of character for the Post
1: yes. to yes. sort of insert
2: itself and create news in that way. Well,
1: it was initially, I mean, I was like, literally was on a plane flying back to Washington when all of this was being decided at the Post. And I got there and they're like, you're going to go meet her, you know, and whatever. But I think the idea was that to have something ready in case they came out with something first. We sort of thought they're going to publish something and try to embarrass us. And we will have this in our back pocket to counter it, you know, if it comes to that. But then what happened was, Aaron Davis and Sean Boberg and the Dalton Bennett and the Thomas Sugar, those video guys plus these two other reporters figured out that she worked for Project Veritas. So they, they reported it out. They went up and, like, saw her going into the offices of Project Veritas. And, and so they were able to basically do a little, like, not little, but like an investigative story. So we did end up publishing it as a story. But, right. but it, I don't think we went in – Thinking, ah, oh, we're going to publish this. Got it. Yeah,
2: it was more defensive. Than it was, that. Like,
1: yeah, it was more defensive. I think initially,
2: but still, like you were being called on to like play the role of a journalist in a way. In a like, you were you were acting a little bit.
1: In a way, yes. I mean, I was a journalist, and I was, I did sort of want to ask her about it. And I have to say that, like, I did have the mission. I was trying to get her on videotape. You know. We wanted her to tell the story. We wanted to get all this on videotape and confront her. But at some point, I remember thinking to myself, like, I wanted her to tell me the real story. Like, I really was Uh being a journalist. After I accomplished sort of my mission, I was like, wait a minute. I'm really curious. Like, how do you become part (laughs) of Project Veritas? Like, were you trained? Like, have you been to spy school or something? Like, what— Like, why? I was so curious.
2: (laughs) I'm not surprised to hear you say that at all. Because, like, I you know, I read that at the time. I read about it before we talked. and, And the whole time we've been talking, I've been trying to think about someone who thinks about this work as sort of straightforwardly and... Sort of as earnestly as you seem to, being in that situation, like, <laughs> it just seems like it'd be super uncomfortable for you. And, yeah. But it, do, it does make sense to me that after you got her to be like, all right, that is me on that GoFundMe, like, uh, this is a little weird, yeah. um, that you would just be like, how did you get yourself in the scam game?
1: Yeah. Well, I was thinking if in her mind she was thinking, okay, the jig is up, you know, maybe she'll tell us and maybe will yeah, like, <laughs> but it didn't turn out that way. But yeah, so it was there was an, a kind of a fake element to it, but yeah. but then there was a genuine element where I really did want to know.
2: Well, there's one other kind of like meta, you know, inception aspect to that <laughs> thing, which is that that person Jamie Phillips is representative in a way of this beat you've been covering. Mm-hmm. You know, she's part of the um, the whiteness beat you've been on. She's and- like the
1: gorilla part or something. Yeah. She says, to special ops.
2: (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Really, really poorly executed special ops. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you and the Post were the targets. And the Post has been the target. You know, the guy who owns the Post has been the target relentlessly from the president. And so I guess my last question for you is, in that case or more generally, like, You are trying to understand the story these people are telling themselves. And part of the story they are telling themselves is that you are a problem. The place you work, the institution in which you have spent the last 16 years of your professional life is being attacked. Right. By the people you're trying to understand. How do you square those things?
1: In a way, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm just doing my job. I, I know that sounds like a maybe a cop-out or whatever, but part of what I do, particularly if you're writing about, you know, Trump supporters who, you know, many of them do believe the press is the media of the enemy or whatever, you know, I find myself increasingly when I go out there and start talking to people, you know, explaining that I'm an, I always use the term old-fashioned. I say I'm an old-fashioned news reporter. You know, I'm not on cable TV. I mean, with all due respect to cable TV, you know, I think a lot of people think what a journalist is, is what they see, you know, between the hours of, you know, 7 and 10 o'clock on the cable news channels. And so, there's often an element of, you know, I'm, I'm standing in front of you because I really do want to know what you have to say. I really do want to understand what's going on here. So, you know, there's an element of trying to counter that mantra or whatever, that the press is the enemy of the people. So in that little small way, maybe I'm, that's what I'm trying to (laughs) contribute, if you will, to, to the moment. But beyond that, it's just a matter of, you know, doing your job and and not to be super corny, but as um, Marty said, you know, we're not at war, we're at work. That's, I think it's a great response to the moment to just keep doing your job. I think that's what we've been doing.
2: Stephanie, thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to MailChimp for making this show possible. And thanks so much to Stephanie for uh, taking some time in her hotel room in Georgia to talk to me about how she does what she does. We'll see you next week.